Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. Watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand all for free. No credit card needed. No sign up. Pluto TV is the easy and completely legal to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again. Download Pluto TV for free on all of your favorite devices today. Hi there. It's Laura Wasser. And if anyone knows how much divorce sucks, it's me. I've been practicing family law for over 20 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces. Creating peace in families is how I lost my voice. From the top of the food chain all the way down to my very first case, which was my own divorce when I was 25. I wrote the book on divorce, or I wrote a book on divorce. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way, How to Divorce Without Destroying Your Family or Bankrupting Yourself. That book became a bestseller because it presented another option for ending a marriage. One that doesn't necessarily include lawyers, and one that leaves more money in both parties' bank accounts and less animosity in their hearts. We created It's Over Easy, the one-stop breakup divorce resource online with the same principles in mind. So welcome to the Divorce Sucks podcast, where we talk about breaking up, getting divorced, and moving on. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Hey listeners, I'm Laura Wasser and this is the Divorce Sucks Podcast and this is the Sunny Side Up Report, which I do with my plucky sidekick. Hello there, Johnny Rains here. As you guys know, the Sunny Side Up Report is where Johnny and I rip from the headlines things that have happened during the past week or two, which either might save your marriage, lead to divorce, tell you when it might be time to get divorced, commiserate with others who are going through breakups, and of course, great tips for how to go through divorce without breaking the bank. That's yes. what's on this week's Sunny Side Up Report. Let's start. With first up, uh, there's a dad who claims that cuddling sessions with men saved his marriage to his wife for 30 years. This is from uh, Mirror.co.uk, yes, written one of by my favorites. Anna Slater. I, I, I mean, as you said, you know, we're talking about stuff ripped from the headlines that might save your marriage. Who would have thought a straight a heterosexual man would save his marriage by creating a cuddle group with other men. Not I. No. And by the way, just for those of you out there who are, you know, haters or thinkers, um, there are strict rules which are enforced, including no, no touching below the belt, above the thigh, or under clothes. But the group's website does claim some level of arousal during cuddling is completely normal. Ripped from an episode of Friends. Really? <laughs> that happened? There was a man-cuddling episode on Friends? How did I miss that one? All right, people.com. Pink reveals she and husband Carrie Hart have been in couples counseling for nearly 17 years. Oh. I love this. I love this because I love Pink. I love how she gives us a look into her family life and is really super honest and shameless about the fact that she and Carrie have been in couples counseling. It's uh, clearly they're in a good marriage. Absolutely. They're, they're happy. They're they're co-parenting. They're raising their kids. And I think it's really, really amazing because as we've discussed before, when famous people do it, we all tend to kind of let it trickle down to us. And so please listen. Um, they, they have a daughter who's seven and a half and a son who's two and they celebrated their 13th wedding anniversary earlier this year so i think it's kind of crazy and they've been through a breakup and a, and a reconciliation and the fact that they are you know reaching out and telling other people about their 
their therapy uh, experiences and why how that helps them is huge. Well, I think the mental health pieces is also, as you just mentioned, something uh, that is very important to talk about. And her mission is to really destigmatize it. She says, I'm hopeful that the taboo of it is all going away, meaning the stigma associated with mental health, because more and more people are talking about it. I think talking about it is the most important thing. And I know that anxiety is like the number one thing that kids now are going through, she said. Next, uh, this is on Bustle.com by Jordan Bissell. Eight unexpected... Jordan Bissell on Bustle. (laughs) You get that out of your system? (laughs) (laughs) I feel better now. (laughs) Eight unexpected sleep habits that can commonly lead to divorce, according to experts. Yes, well... It's interesting because the article that the article goes into some things that you can actually do to avoid divorce, um, and they talk about how having different bedtimes can be like a problem area. Because um, you know, you, let's say you go to bed earlier than I, and we're married. Let's just say that for the sake of the conversation. Um, and I come in and wake you up. I can only imagine that could lead to a divorce. Yes, or worse. <laughs> um, it is. It lists a bunch of stuff, and I think it's so interesting. I know several couples that either do not sleep in the same room, right, um, because of snoring, because of different sleep habits. Yes, um, it, it, it's kind of crazy. I want to just talk about Mary, even though we're not married, because Mary, one of my best girlfriends, and she works with us over in Louisiana, will once in a while need to travel for work, and yes. if it's a quick overnight, we don't always get two rooms. So one of the first time this happened, Mary, like, you know, I, I, as long as I'm horizontal, I can sleep. I can't sleep on planes because I have to be awake so that the plane stays in the air. That's important. Yeah. Anyone ever flies (laughs) with me. Just FYI. But, but Mary, but if it's dark and I'm horizontal, I can sleep. So Mary starts this pre bedtime ritual that has like stretching and deep breathing. Oh my. And then there's lavender essential oils that go on the wrists and the pulse points. And then she puts on a mask and then she puts in earplugs. And again, this is all fine. And her husband, Roger, who I'm good friends with. She looks great in the morning. Yes. And, but Roger has to sleep somewhere separate because he snores. Even with all this, now you might ask yourself, which I did, if she's wearing earplugs why does it matter if he snores but that was right around the point where she put on the sound machine ah (laughs) so now there's one person in the room that's wearing earplugs (laughs) and there's one person in the room that's not wearing earplugs and that's the person that's hearing the goddamn sound machine is me and she's soundly sleeping with her lavender stuff and her mask and everything else and it wasn't it wasn't so so soothing that's it mary we're getting divorced well it says one partner snoring uh at night can be tough uh it says the snorer may not even realize how much this habit could be disturbing the other person taking a pill to fall asleep Hmm. Hmm. won't cause problems in your relationship but it can make it harder to get intimate if you take it before having sex duh Thanks for telling us that date rape. If you're <laughs> okay, uh, from Jordan Bissell at Bustle. Yeah. No, I guess that one's for a- Andrew Zah for Bustle. Told us taking the pill, and I think they've they've put some other people in on this one. Ah, Watching it. TV in bed. Mm. If you and your partner live together, it's good for your relationship to make your bedroom a special place for the two of you. It should be used for sensual, relaxing experience in your sanctuary with your partner, she says. Do your best to keep the environment peaceful, soothing and neat, which means kicking electronics out whenever possible. Both of you should try to adjust wherever you can and adjust again whenever something doesn't work. If you really can't find a balance that suits each of you, Sassoon says, you can try sleeping in different rooms. While not ideal, it's better to opt for a sleep divorce than an official one. That's uh, Rory Sassoon, who's an, a, re- a relationship expert. Interesting. Very interesting. 
Uh, this from health.com. I thought this was really interesting. I kind of scroll through the internet and I send things that I find to Johnny. I, this is a sad story, but again, it will give you an idea of how flawed both uh, what I always say is our family law system is, but also our healthcare system. This couple was paying so much for their son's disability, a doctor suggested getting a divorce. And this is this is in Tennessee, which is a very family-friendly state. You'd think that if anywhere <clears throat> in the United States at least the, the, the system would be not so broken in a state like Tennessee. So they have a son, Jackson. He was born premature, and he spent the next three months in the NICU at the University of Tennessee. His prognosis wasn't good, and he had to use a feeding tube, and he had trouble hearing out of his left ear. Poor guy. So this couple has had to have many, many medical treatments, and when they went to the local Social Security Administration office on the first business days of 2013 to apply for disability, the person he spoke with there had some bad news and said he was a day late. He needed to apply the last business day of 2012. That's so crazy. Yes. So Jackson still requires a feeding tube. He's six and he's autistic and nonverbal and he needs both occupational and speech therapy. And Randy's insurance only covers so many sessions with the two therapists Jackson works with each year. So in order for him to truly thrive, he requires more therapy sessions than his father's company's insurer pays for. So they actually went to their doctor right. and he recently told them that if they could lower the cost of Jackson's medical bills by getting divorced... The reasoning is simple. Randy and his wife, Angela, make too much money to qualify for the 10-care assistance for Jackson right now. I'm not sure if I'm hearing this right, Randy thought when the doctor proposed this idea, but he was. The doctor advised them to get a divorce because then Angela, who can't work in part because she takes care of her disabled son, could qualify for 10-care. The doctor said to them, I've told a lot of my other patients, your best bet is to get a divorce. She told Randy, what you can do is get an apartment down the street, you need another physical address, and then you basically don't pay any of their support. Then they would both qualify for 10 care because they have no source of income. I mean, it still sounds like it's, I mean, on the one hand, when I was reading this article, I was thinking, well, why not just get divorced if you can save, you know, your kid's life? But then on the other hand, it's almost they're telling them to scam the government. Yes. And they opted not to do it. They really, it was important for them to stay married and tough it out. It just, it, it made me sad and it made me think. And it was one of the few times that I could ever imagine a doctor recommending that a couple got divorced. So, Well, one thing that is interesting about, you know, the moral of the story is the parents are really fighting in the state of Tennessee. Um, they're continuing to push for this policy to change, which benefit fam- families with disabled children all over the state. Randy says, we're not looking for a handout. We're working. We just need a little help. There needs to be assistance here. I also wanted to mention that in the May 2019 um, issue of Town & Country, there is a great spread all about all of the great billion-dollar betrayals in 2018-19. Well, again, it goes back, and it talks about a bunch of them, and I'm not going to name them. It talks about to cheat or not to cheat, and there is how the affair created the novel, and it's just very interesting just in terms of some of the thing. The Mayflower Madam, uh, Sidney Biddle Barrows talks about, you know, business and betrayal and the Bezoses. And it's just a very interesting... Sh- the, the, the secret keepers are the concierge at a hotel, the florist, the real estate agent, Uh-oh. the maitre d' and the doorman. And are they really keeping secrets? Um, some of them are. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's just an interesting read if anybody is a town and country subscriber or wants to pick it up at your local newsstand. Finally, yes. um, in this... Weekends, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> New York Times Sunday Styles, my favorite in the vows section by our friend Louise Rafkin. Yes, uh, quoted here is Ms. Wasser, 
who said the gap between her high-end clients and those who divorce online is just one of zeros in their bank accounts. Divorce is the great equalizer. We all have the same feelings, mainly fear and sadness. What's so great about this article from our perspective is that it's over easy gets a mention here. Many of our friends in the divorce space online and in brick and mortar get mentioned here too. It's a great article. If you haven't uh, read it yet and you're considering divorce, this is something you should definitely read before you make a move. Absolutely. And finally, I just wanted to let our listeners know, anybody that's struggling with divorce or healing from it, uh, Saturday, May 18th in the Riveter in Marina Del Rey, the BY, B-Y-E, Best You Ever Divorce Summit is happening. This empowering divorce retreat featuring a stellar list of all-star experts, including yours truly. We'll be leaving you feeling inspired, empowered, and transformed. I already feel inspired. As a bonus, I'll be recording live Breaking Free, the Modern Divorce podcast with hosts Rebecca Zung and Susan Guthrie, where you'll be able to ask a lawyer anything. Go to byedivorce.com for tickets. We'd love to see you. It's in Marina Del Rey, again on May 18th. This is the first divorce summit in which I participated, and I'm totally psyched. Yeah, me too. I'll be there. And on today's Divorce Sucks podcast, coming next, my friend and colleague Tracy Blumenthal-Katz joins us for some talk about how people can handle their finances during and after a dissolution. Today's Divorce Sucks is dedicated to your money. We all know that supposedly the best things in life are free, but as Coco Chanel so eloquently adds, the second best things in life are very very expensive. What's expensive is a relative term for working people, and today's Divorce Sucks will help us put our finances in order. My guest today is attorney and CPA Tracy Katz, who is certified in financial forensics. She's also a frequent lecturer at various continuing education seminars, including the Family Law Symposiums of both Beverly Hills Bar Association and the Los Angeles County Bar Association. Ms. Katz has lectured on a multitude of family law topics, such as marital standard of living, that's lifestyle to us. High income earners and children's reasonable needs analyses, same sex marriages and dissolution, and complex cash flow issues. Welcome to the Divorce Sex Podcast, Tracy, or as I call you, TK. Thank you. I love when people look at my CV and read it back to me because it makes me sound so much smarter than I think I actually am. <laughs> and I should tell our listeners, I've known Tracy for almost 25 years. Um, we work together often. She is a partner at Gersey Schneider LLP. Um, I think you folks have heard me on the show sometimes say, like, when we get into complex financial issues, I suck at math. So I usually just call one of my forensic accountant friends like Tracy. And all of those issues that we talk about on the Divorce Sex Podcast, like lifestyle analysis, spousal support, child support, division of income, how to figure out what percentage of a royalty or a residual a person gets if they're getting kickbacks that come from you know services performed on some kind of a project, whether it be a film or a television show or a song during the marriage. She is really good at all that stuff. And she's a lawyer, as I said. So she really does get it. She's an amazing witness when we put her on the stand in our family law cases. But more than anything, one of the reasons that I really love working with her and appreciate her and asked her to come on the show today is she's one of us professionals 
that talks like a normal person and human. And so she makes it really easy to understand. And so since I know that I suck at math and I'm not super smart, I have to assume you listeners are fall in line behind me as well. So Tracy came today so she can talk to us a little bit about finances during a divorce, both before you get married and get into that relationship throughout your marriage and having a certain amount of financial responsibility and accountability, and then how to approach if you're going to get a divorce, your finances. So Welcome again to the show, Tracy. Thank you so much for being here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me because as your podcast name suggests, divorce does suck and the finances shouldn't be as overwhelming as they tend to be for people. So any way to simplify this, it's a wonderful gift you're giving to people going through this process. Thank you. So tell us some of your, and I know you speak a lot publicly, tell us, I mean, before a person gets married, what is it that they should know not only about their own finances, but about the person that they're kind of casting their lot in life with? So the first thing I like to tell people, and people don't often like to hear this, but I'm a big believer in being practical, is that getting married, it's a business arrangement. And I realize how unromantic that sounds, right? Everybody's in love and there are little birdies tweeting and hearts, you know, following them around on a regular basis. But the reality is we think that we are intelligent people and none of us would enter into a partnership without reading all of the fine print in the partnership agreement. Getting married is the ultimate partnership. You are partnering up with this person. And I think people need to be really aware of what that means. For example, are you, and you need to make decisions. Let me back up. You also need to make decisions about how you're going to handle your finances because the number one thing I hear when I'm sitting with clients who are going through a divorce, it's we fought about money. We couldn't ever decide on, you know, how to handle money. Um, Or it's, you know, we were building a house. That's the other (laughs) one that causes a divorce. But nine times out of 10, it's money. Uh, And I think that that's the most important conversation to have with your soon-to-be spouse is, are we going to have a joint bank account? Are we going to just let the laws of California govern our union, or do we want to make our own decisions about our union? Maybe one party has more assets coming into this marriage than the other party. Maybe one party has family money, and they want to protect that. And those are conversations that you have to have on the front end of your union so you can make appropriate decisions and so there aren't any surprises later. I always think the greatest thing anybody can do who is getting divorced is to, or getting married, sorry, is to call up a family law attorney and pay for an hour or two of their time and just ask them all these questions. Hey, we're thinking of buying a house together. What does that mean to me? You know, hey, we're, you know, my husband, soon-to-be husband has a lot of School debt. We want to pay that off, so we enter into our marriage with you know with no debt. What does that mean? I think those are all questions that people should be thinking about and have the answers to before they actually enter into this partnership. So, Tracy, do I understand you to be saying that whether or not you have a prenuptial agreement, it's still very important to have the kind of conversations that you would have if you were going to be entering into a prenuptial agreement? Not everybody needs one, but what everybody needs is to know the contract into which they're entering and the terms of that contract. All of the things about your about-to-be spouse that that may not be very romantic to talk about. So how much do you make a year? What do you owe on those student loans? What's your spousal support obligation to your former? wife and your kid. 
that needs to come up at some point. And it may be that you're both totally fine with it, but you have to be informed. I that I couldn't have said it more articulately myself, because, again, this we live in a world where with the current divorce rate being what it is, a lot of people out there, this isn't their first marriage for them. This is a second or third or fourth. <laughs> I've got one person who I've done four divorces for them so far. I think like I an give, annuity. Yeah, I have to give them a punch card the next time. Um, I think I think the the real the real um, discussion that has to have is that you have to have with your soon to be spouse is that hard, uncomfortable discussion. You have to be aware of the ramifications. And I literally have told friends who are getting married, who when sometimes I answer questions for them. And if it's not the answer they like, I have advised mm. them, call up a family law attorney, pay for an hour or two hours of their time. On the plus side, if you call up a really good one, if you end up getting divorced, they're conflicted out <laughs> later on down the line. That's just a little side bonus. But you are going into this with both eyes wide open. And that's the most important information I think needs to be conveyed to people who are considering getting married be as happy and romantic as you can be, but have this dialogue up front so you know what you're getting into. So as a CPA who is married to another CPA, I know Tracy's <laughs> husband, so I've already blown one of the interrogatories for later because she's married. Um, why is it so difficult to talk about money? Why is it so awkward and unromantic? Why do you think that is? I mean, you guys probably talked about it because I know you had worked together before you got married. But is it uncomfortable for everybody? Is it uncomfortable for you number nerds, too? It's it's actually <laughs> less uncomfortable for us number nerds because that's that's the world we're comfortable in, right? How, you know, what's the joke about how you know you're meeting an accountant because you don't make eye contact with them? <laughs> so, you know, th that's the reality with most accountants. So living in the numbers world... We are comfortable there. But I think, and I've had this conversation with clients as well, I think money is an uncomfortable subject, especially if there is an unequal power dynamic, meaning one spouse has a whole lot more than the other. I think that that's a difficult conversation to have. It's like saying, you know, oh, we really need to buy our burial plots, right? Yeah. Also a difficult conversation to be thinking about. People just don't like to have that conversation. And I really think some of it stems from not just the fact that we've been taught our whole life. You don't talk about money. You don't ask your friends what they make. You don't talk about what you make. I mean, we've been taught that our whole lives. So I do think that that's some of what makes it difficult to have that conversation to begin with. But it is, it does sort of make what you're doing less romantic. And you know, you want to be trying on dresses. You want to be looking at flowers. You want to be picking bridesmaids' dresses. You don't want to be saying, so if we break up right. while I'm trying on this lovely wedding dress, right. am I going to pay you spousal support or vice versa? Right. Uh, it's just it, it, it takes the romantic sheen off of the whole process, which I think is one of, one of the reasons why it's uncomfortable. The other reason, again, is truly we have been taught our whole lives. You don't discuss money you know, with and, other people. And don't you think it's interesting? I mean, again, we've been taught our whole lives we don't talk about our vaginas and our penises, <laughs> but yet when we get into an intimate relationship, we're like, hey, get in there. <laughs> so if you're in an intimate relationship, you like that, Chef? <laughs> you're in an intimate relationship with someone, shouldn't you be able to open up a little bit about money? And if you are embarking on a marriage with that person, which again, I always say to people, this is a contract, this is a transaction, 
isn't that the time that you kind of go, look, this is going to be the business part of our relationship. When you have children with somebody and you're over a certain age, you have to go in for a bunch of genetic testing. Right. So if you're, and it's a relatively young age now. It's like 35 or something. And they start doing all these tests to figure out what you might have and what you might give and what your family history is. That's not romantic, but we do that. Why is it that we are so unwilling? Why does that? Why is it so difficult? Again, I'm not. This is more of a rhetorical it's question. Completely rhetorical. Um, and and then the next step is whether you've had those conversations or not. I truly believe that if you have had those conversations, if you've broken through those barriers, you are more likely to have a successful relationship, successful marriage. However, whether you do or you don't have them, and your marriage hits a wall, now you've had the conversations. But unfortunately, you decided to redecorate your house or rebuild your house. So now you're getting divorced anyway. Now what happens? What is the best thing? I get so many calls from people saying, okay, I'm thinking of getting divorced and we're in marriage counseling and I'm trying to make it work. But just in case it doesn't, what should I be doing? And 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 let's talk a little bit. I tell people all the time as a lawyer – in your state, wherever that is, it is likely that the discovery laws are quite wide, meaning you will get the information that you may not be able to get during your marriage from your spouse if he or she is very controlling. Oh, gee, I just wanted to see what it is we spend a year or what we make a year. And a lot of times one of the p- people will say, well, I'm not giving you that information, which is kind of when you know your relationship might be in trouble. That being said, if you're getting divorced, you're going to find out everything. So you don't have to have the shoe phone to sneak in into the closet and take pictures of his tax returns or whatever else or hack into his computer. You're going to get all of that stuff. But as a married person, what is it that you should know about your family finances that will help you both make an informed decision as to whether or not you may want to get divorced or to get a better handle on what's going on within your transaction, so to speak, as a married person? By the way, I just have to say one of my favorite stories is I was sitting with a client and we were talking about uh, with the attorney, we were talking about you know the process and the discovery, and she literally said, "You mean I finally get to see the tax returns that I had to sign all those years?" Yeah, I mean it really <laughs> does still happen, and a big part of it has to do with and and I will say it is mostly women. I know I'm being chauvinistic, but women, and I've spoken on panels about this, women abdicate our financial responsibility quite often. We don't want to know as long as you're paying the credit card at pa- payments. We're good. That can lead to problems in your relationship, both in and if you're moving out of the relationship, correct? All day long. That is the other advice I give to all of my female friends, which is be aware. You know, when clients come in and we're starting this process, again, being sexist for a moment, the female ones who are unaware, they are shocked by what they spend. They are shocked by the amount of money when they do get discovery that they find sitting in a brokerage account. I didn't know we had that kind of money. Or I didn't know we didn't have that kind of money. That's another thing, guys. That's the worst. Even if you're not going to get divorced, you're just going along your merry old way. And all of a sudden you realize, A, you're married to Bernie Madoff, or B, your husband gets gets dead, so to speak. Where, where are the bodies buried? Where is the money? You need to know this stuff. You don't sign a tax return without looking at a tax return. And that doesn't mean you have to understand all the intricacies of the tax return. But we can all look at the front page of the tax return and see that line that says adjusted gross income. That gives you some indication of what you're, what you've made that year during marriage. And, you know, if you're at all savvy, you can assume I'm 
paying taxes. Maybe it's 35%, maybe it's 50% if you're living in California and you're making over a certain amount of money. And that means I know how much we have left to spend and to save. Again, rough numbers. I I used to joke, you know, you've heard the old adage about the shoemaker's kids have mm-hmm. no shoes. And I, it's the same way with accountants. I mean, I haven't reconciled a checking account since, I, I don't know, I was in law school. I always used to joke I use the force. I know how much goes in <laughs> and I kind of know what I'm writing in checks to go out. But everybody should sort of use the force and have some understanding if you're not the one in control of your books. You look at every tax return before somebody asks you to sign it. And again, everybody's e-filing these days. Again, you just want to see what's on you know, the front page or two of the tax return so you have some understanding as to what your finances have been for that year. You want to see bank statements or credit card statements or brokerage account statements when they come in. You know, a lot of times the other uh, thing that I hear from clients is, well, you know, all of those bills and account statements went to the office. So I never saw any of them. And again, I get it. That's just the way some people run their life. You know, you've got a business, you have an in-house accounting department, and so they're handling all of your finances. And if your husband, again, being sexist, I apologize, has that kind of setup, then somebody is maintaining some set of books for you. Somebody is keeping track of the income that's coming in and the expenses that are being paid. If you not getting the source documents, you at least want to see what reports, check registers, financial statements, et cetera, that are being created by the accounting department at the office who's maintaining these records. You have to be in some control. And it doesn't mean you have to be in control as in you're writing the checks. It just means you have to have knowledge. Right. And it's not fun and it is boring and I get it. However, it will, just like we go to the gym to keep our bodies in shape, just like we go to therapy to keep our emotions in shape, you need to spend a little bit of time every week or every month going through th- some of this stuff. And if you can, you should establish that at the beginning of the relationship. Because, And whoever is going to be dealing with it, if it's not you or your spouse, then you have to establish a relationship with that person, establish a line of communication with that person, make sure that if it's your spouse that's earning the money and paying the bookkeeper person, that you also have the consent of your spouse to have all the same kind of information and access to it. I, I know a lot of couples where one person is the breadwinner and the other person is the account manager, so to speak, and paying all of the expenses. So sometimes it's the breadwinner that comes in and says, I have no idea what we spend. I just go to work, make the money, the check comes home, and he or she writes all of our household checks. That is an interesting situation. Those are often families that, you know, maybe they don't communicate about it enough, but at least they're both in control of the financial aspects of their relationship. The other problem, again, as I said, is if something goes wrong, there shouldn't be finger pointing. You guys are in this together. So if you start at the beginning with full disclosure and then you move through your relationship, sharing the burden, sharing the responsibilities, that often makes for a more successful relationship. Now, let's say that ship has sailed, Tracy, okay? Now you've got somebody that's been in a relationship and they call you and they say, okay, I'm getting divorced and I am very, very ashamed to admit that I know nothing. I could get a reservation at any restaurant in this town and I can go to Neiman Marcus and my stylist will pick me out an outfit and I can charge it, but I don't know what we have and I don't know what we make and I don't know what we owe and I need help. Tracy Katz of Gersey Schneider, how can you help me? What is it that I need? What kind of information am I going to be having my attorney ask for? So the first thing you're going to have your attorney ask for is the tax returns. That 
is the overarching uh the overarching document that we need because the tax return gives us a ton of financial information. It doesn't just tell us what a party or parties earned in the last year. It tells us what accounts are generating interest and or dividend income. So we know which um, banks or brokerage houses that the attorneys may need to subpoena to get those records. If there are investments, uh, business interests, partnerships, S corporations, et cetera, we're going to see that on the personal tax return as well. And it gives us the ability to say, oh, aha, I see that, you know, your husband is a doctor and he's got um, a corporation where he collects all of his income and pays all of his expenses. We also need to get the financial statements of Dr. Smith, Inc. So, you know, the tax return is the starting document that gives us all the information. Now, I'm going to ask a question that I get asked a lot. Can I get that? And, and another thing is this. If I don't have a lawyer, because as you know, we have It's Over Easy, which is online divorce, I will tell you listeners, you still have to get that same information. And so, yes, the answer is I, you can get that information through the discovery process in your state, whether or not you're doing it by an uncontested mediation and you're doing it on your own or whether you're doing it through attorneys. That information is not difficult to get and it is very, very hard to avoid having to produce that information. And if you do have an accountant who has been doing your taxes every year, that accountant represents both husband and wife. And you could pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, remember the tax returns you did for us for the last three years? Can you shoot me over a copy? And sometimes, frustratingly, some accountants will say, well, let me talk to, you know, Mr. because he's the one who really signs my checks. And that's a problem because during marriage, they are representing both of you. So. And they have a fiduciary duty to you. That's what you need to, I tell people all the time, yes. just throw that little fiduciary duty line in there and it'll make them nervous enough to send everything right over. That's exactly right. You <clears throat> get those and you get those from discovery. But if you do have an accountant, you can get those just by picking up the phone and calling your joint accountant. And that, I mean, that is the sort of starting place, the holy grail of what your forensic accountant would want to see to understand what other documents we would need to request. Is it easy to hide money? Uh, the answer is... I'm asking because I'm planning to hide, hide some money. Right, no, I, right. People say to me all the time, well, she's probably hiding money. Right, the answer is yes and no. So yes, in some businesses that are truly cash businesses. Hairdressers. Hairdressers. Tour managers. Tour managers. <laughs> well, you know, bar, a bar, uh -huh. a restaurant is the quintessential one. But even... Drug dealers. Drug dealers for sure, you know. Um, what was the joke? I once had a... Strippers. A, I once had a client tell me about how they, you know, used to claim their drug dealers are dependent on their tax return because they gave them so much cash. Anyway, it's probably a joke only for an accountant, although I appreciate the laugh, Laura. Uh, but no, um, it, the, the cash businesses are the only real sort of possible way that we see that. And even then, think about the world that we live in. I mean, when I go to my hairdresser, I pay with my iPhone, right? We all use Apple Pay these days. There's those Foursquare where everybody has the ability to take 
everything electronically. I mean, even when you go to a bar, when was the last time you whipped out a hundred and left it on the bar? You give them your credit card. Well, okay, maybe you, Laura. Uh, <laughs> Dennis Wasser's daughter. I operate in cash. <laughs> but other, most people will, you know, give somebody a credit card. And if it's a tough day, say, hey, keep that tab open, mm-hmm. which means there are financial records. And those bar, you know, the at, at the quintessential restaurant, those get tallied out at the end of every night. You know, every somebody is is checking what's in the till, so to speak, with you know what they've got. So it's harder and harder to pocket cash the way everybody thinks. So and so is you know stealing cash. And how about the big numbers when people come in and say, "Well, could my spouse hide money from me?" I think that the, there's probably some account in the Cayman Islands or whatever, like you see in the movies. Not so easy, right? Because you have an electronic footprint of what's gone on financially. That, that's exactly right. Again, if I am transferring money to my secret account in the Cayman Islands, where am I transferring it from? Right. It originates from someplace. So you're either going to see it in my checking account or you're going to see it in my business's checking account or savings account where I'm transferring the money from. And again, if I'm just taking cash out of that business, then there will be some some record. If we're being tasked with valuing somebody's business and a client raises some suspicion, first we explain to them, one, how difficult it is to do that. And when they say, well, but you know, he owns a bar or he owns, you know, a typical type of cash business, then we look at the books of that business and compare it to what industry standards are and say, that looks a little off. Right. And then and then maybe it tells us we need to do something else. But absent that, I the last thing I want to do is go down a very expensive rabbit hole with a client who tells me, I think this is happening. Right. Alexa isn't the only one with breaking news. Make sure to hang around at the end of this podcast for the latest breaking headlines on the AP News Minute. Calling all Housewife fans. You're going to love House of Kim with Kim Zolciak on Podcast One. Get ready to fall in love. Join Kim along with husband Croy and the rest of the family as she teaches her mindset of asking, believing, and receiving and takes you along for the amazing ride known as her life. And I thought about doing this venture. I thought, you know what? I have an eye for this stuff. I can do this. Check out House of Kim every Tuesday and Thursday, only on Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. Welcome back to the Divorce Sex Podcast here on Podcast One. I am Laura Wasser, your host, and today I have my friend and colleague, forensic accountant Tracy Katz. She is also a lawyer, she is a CPA, and she is certified in financial forensics. What that means is that she is a numbers nerd, but she came today to speak with us about financial fluency, how to ask the right questions, get the right information as you are entering into a relationship or a marriage how to continue with your knowledge of your finances for your family while you're in the marriage and possibly avoid the kind of issues that lead to divorce or even financial ruin. And then perhaps most importantly for our purposes, what you can do if you are embarking upon the path of divorce and how to make it simpler and actually spend less money during the process. So Tracy, as you know, I have the It's Over Easy online divorce website. I know that you and I in our private practices represent a lot of 
high net worth individuals. And we spoke earlier about, you know, some of the reasonable needs analysis in the state of California for, for child support and these kids with these crazily expensive birthday parties and flying private to the private islands and the clothing and all that kind of stuff. But tell us for our more regular guy listeners, what a, a person can do if he or she is headed for divorce to really kind of make the financial moves simple and transact the dissolution in a way that makes sense for them on their own. So it's really interesting when I have these conversations with my friends who we are sadly at the age where people are getting divorced. You know, we are regular people. I, I couldn't afford you if I were getting divorced. Nor I, could couldn't I. Af- I couldn't afford me either. <laughs> right. And I couldn't afford her. <laughs> right. I couldn't afford myself. And so I always tell them, it's the same. We just have less zeros right. after it. But but the process is the same. And the process is to be savvy about your finances. You need to be looking at your tax returns like we talked about. If you're going through this process, you need to, as soon as possible in an amicable breakup, divide your accounts because that will save you a lot of heartache on a later end when somebody starts fighting about how I don't think I got my half in California. You're entitled to half of the community property. I'm not sure I got my half of everything. So you can save yourself some money if you can divide everything that's community as quickly as possible. And the other thing is, again, if you're looking at your tax returns every year and you're savvy about what your income is, you should also be somewhat savvy about what you're spending every month what your rent is on your apartment or what your mortgage is on your house, whatever it is, you should know how much you're spending, what it costs when you go to the hairdressers, you know, what it costs if you go shopping. You know, do I have a Nordstrom's credit card or do I have a Target credit card? Those are questions that are on the financial affidavit that you're going to be asked to fill out. What are my assets and what are my debts? So you should be cognizant of whatever your credit card debts are. Do I owe money to the government because we haven't paid our taxes yet? Uh, Again, you should be cognizant. And if you're looking at your tax return every year, you'll have that information. So it's the same type of information. Review your tax return, know where your accounts are, and know what it is you spend your money on. Nobody's asking you to the penny, but roughly where your money goes every month. That's the best advice to help somebody get through a dissolution as least painfully and you know cost effectively as possible. If we are just regular people and we're trying to fill out that form that in California is called the schedule of assets and debts, it may be easier to actually figure out what our debts are than what our assets are. How do you tell an average Joe to figure out what their assets are worth? If it's not a bank account with a number in it, how do we find out what our boat or our house or our apartment is worth if we don't, if we're not, if we can't afford to hire an appraiser, so to speak? Do you have any tricks of the trade there? Do you use Zillow or? So what I often tell clients is, just give me your best estimate. If you bought the house three years ago for $500,000, maybe you think your house is worth five fifty dollars or $600,000 now. I mean, you don't think it's gone up tremendously, but you think it's gone up a little. Just use your best estimate. I mean, a lot of times when we're filling out those forms, we tell the clients to just say what the source is. So you can say, you know, Bob's estimate, or you can say, per Zillow or per Redfin. I mean, sure, clients can use that, 
But I always say look at that first and then do a gut check because if you're living in a house that you just bought fairly recently um, or if you even if you bought it 10 years ago, you kind of have a sense of what you paid for the house and you want to know if that just makes sense what Redfin or Zillow says because sometimes it doesn't. Do, so, you do know, we still use the blue book to figure out what cars are worth? We do all the time. Okay. Yeah, we absolutely do. Uh, and again, you know, we use Kelly Blue Book. And if you go online, you can find Kelly Blue Book online. It's free. It'll ask you a couple of questions about what your mileage is on your car, what types of um, additions you have on the car. And then it'll give you, you know, a trade in value. Uh, and we use that all the time for to fill out the schedule of assets and debts. The assets and debt form asks you about your furnishings and artwork. A lot of times people don't have that or they'll say, we spent five grand at restoration hardware, <laughs> you know, all those years ago. And then you just write TBD. Right. You know, it's not it, – it, nobody's, you know, going to hold you accountable if this isn't you know, 100% perfect, because the reality is with, unless you have antiques. Right. If it's an antique, no. it's different. But for the stuff that you bought at Restoration Hardware or elsewhere, remember, it's not what you paid for it. It's right. what you could get if you sold it at a garage sale or Craigslist. So I assure you that your $500 chair ain't going for $500 on, on Craigslist anymore. It's, so, not, it's maybe going for 50 or or right. $100. You may have to maybe. pay them to take it away. Right. Like the Wagon Wheel Coffee Table in, uh, <laughs> in when Harry Met Sally. <laughs> the stupid Wagon Wheel Coffee Table. Exactly. Also, as you are where we have clients that are sometimes extremely emotional. They just think they're getting screwed no matter what, um, whether it's a misappropriation claim, which I'd like you to, to explain to our listeners, or somebody who really believes that their spouse is making more money than they actually are seeing on whatever the disclosures. How do you handle that? So let's take the first or the second one that you talked about, somebody who believes that there should be more money lying around. So one of the first things that I like to do for those clients is to say, hey, look, we have the tax returns. We know what you've earned for X number of years during marriage. We also know roughly what you've spent because at this point, we've talked to the client about the uh, form in California that has to be filled out, the income and expense declaration, where you have to list your average monthly expenses for everything, your housing, your clothing, your childcare education costs, et cetera. So if we have an idea of what the income has been and we know what the taxes are, right, because we've got the tax returns, we can subtract the taxes from the gross income, arrive at a number that tells us what they had to spend and or save. And if I know what their spending has been and I can say, look, after taxes, you should have had $100,000, but you guys spent almost $10,000 a month. And if you're doing the math, that's 120 grand. I actually got that. Okay. okay. <laughs> that means you have 20 grand in credit card debt. Conversely, if you're supposed to have $100,000 and you're only spending $5,000 a month, we can do that math. 60. 60, <laughs> which means there should be 40 grand in savings somewhere. So I can do sort of a basic outline for them to say, yes, you're right. There should be more money here. Or you know, here's what you're not thinking of. You're not cognizant of, you know, when you think of your average monthly expenses, maybe you're not thinking of the one-time payments 
that would be averaged into this. And that's why you're not thinking when you think your monthly expenses were really five grand, they were more like nine. Right. You know, so I try to do some sort of basic analysis to answer that question. Either they're right or they're way off base. And the other really important thing that is in our retainer agreements to deal with exactly this issue is our retainer agreements say that we take our instruction from the attorney, Mm -hmm. specifically not from the client for exactly the reason that you articulated. Clients are very emotional. They don't always have the best grasp and they can have us doing a whole lot of work which the attorney may say, I, I don't need any of that. Right now, right. we're just dealing with the issue of support. Just tell me what the, tell me what support's supposed to be. So, you know, we really try to avoid spending a whole lot of money if we can. But again, we have those emotional clients. And I can't tell you how many times I've had clients say, I'd rather spend every nickel with my professionals right. than just give it nail to nail him. Yes, than give it to my spouse. And we do have something in in California called misappropriation claims. Yes. Again, as we discussed, whether you have an attorney and a forensic accountant or you're doing it on your own, you will have to fill out an exchange, meaning also receive paperwork that shows what you earn and what you spend. That's the income and expense declaration Tracy was talking about and what you have and what you owe. That's the schedule of assets and debts. And in different states, they're called different things, but those four corners will give you and your forensic accountant, if you have one, and your attorney and the judge, if you need to see one, an idea of what your financial snapshot is. Now, what happens when you start requesting, you've gone through the income and expense declaration, you've seen what the family earns, you've seen what the family spends, you start looking at the credit card statements and you see that there are other payments that are being made for big ticket items every month that aren't on that income and expense declaration and maybe therefore a different rental or a different car lease or some Chanel bags or um, some Botox and your client doesn't get Botox. Now what happens? That That's a classic. Sadly, sometimes that is exactly how our clients find out about the fact that they have a misappropriation claim. Sometimes it happens on the front end because I hear I'm getting divorced because I didn't know there was a second family in pick a country. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in, in that case, when you find out that there is this second family or you identify some expenses on the credit card statements that don't appear anywhere on the financial affidavit, you start discussing about, well, this means money was spent and it wasn't for the benefit of this community. And that's the misappropriation claim. So and do you get that back? You get that back. And well, I want to be clear about that. <laughs> the misappropriation happened to the community. Right. So you don't get it all back. You folks. don't get it you all get back. You get half of it back. The other half was his or hers to spend as he or she pleased. And evidently he or she was <laughs> quite pleased. Um, another question. We talk a lot in California, particularly with regard to child support, where we have very, very high guideline support about reasonable needs. And I know I've heard you speak about children's reasonable needs, particularly in high earner families or with a high earner parent. Tell me some of the fun reasonable needs scenarios that you've seen. Oh, boy. The expenses can go anywhere from the $100,000 seven-year-old birthday party with the skateboarding elephant uh, (laughs) to the incredibly lavish vacations to my favorite that 
everybody has their own personal chef. It's not enough for mom and dad to have a chef, but the kids need to have their own chef as well. And in recent years, and this one's kind of funny, sometimes you'll hear parents fight about what we call add-ons, which is if you're paying child support, these are additional costs that you're paying over and above what the guidelines are. And one of my most recent fun ones for an add-on was for Postmates. <laughs> and I said, what are we, we're talking about food delivery. You got to be kidding me. You know, 100 bucks, 200 bucks a month. And my client literally said, no, no, my 14-year-old comes home and orders about $200 worth of sushi. Oh, my God. Three days a week. Oh, my God. You know, when their friends are there. And, and they were talking <laughs> about almost $1,000 of food delivery you know, per month. We have, yeah, we have all <laughs> kinds of new ones now from Postmates to Uber accounts Uber. for kids, making sure kids are getting driven around where they need to be. Um, and again, unbelievably expensive clothing allowances for children, the parties. Forget the five-year-old birthday party, the bar and bat mitzvahs. Forget it. The and the sweet 16s and the quinceañeras. And all of those kids have a better clothing allowance than I have. It's a little <laughs> and annoying. By the way, she's got a really good clothing <laughs> allowance. Um, tell us about same-sex marriages and divorces and how those differ, forensically speaking, if they do. Well, you know, in our, again, our dorky financial uh, world, we used to say, oh, thank God for same-sex marriage. That's just inventory on the shelf, you know, <laughs> more for us. Uh, it used to be fairly complex because the federal laws differed from the state laws. And now we are in a place where at least the current stasis is everything is the same. Now, having said that, I, I don't know if people are aware, and this isn't just as it relates to same-sex same sex marriage, but the most recent Tax Cut and Jobs Act, all of those changes are federal changes. They are not state changes. So when you hear people say, oh, my God, alimony is no longer tax deductible, that's true at the federal level. That's not true at the California level. California has not conformed to a lot of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act changes, if you will. And we're still waiting on guidance coming out as to what will and what won't be conformed. But at this point, there is no conformity. When do we get that guidance? <laughs> By the way, I think we also find out in California whether we're going to keep daylight savings time all year long. So that's coming up. I can't wait for that. But what kind of a break were payor spouses getting on spousal support at the state level? It wasn't a big number or was it? What was the percentage? So again, the, the difference always related to what your spousal support obligation was and the ability to deduct that. So it all related to what your tax bracket was that you were in. So depending if you're in the 30% tax bracket, you know, you're deducting it at about 30%. If you're in a 40 or 50% tax bracket, you get a bigger benefit. What people don't seem to understand because this change happened January of this year and the eight days ago, eight days ago, <laughs> and the panicked calls that we fielded all through December, I have to get my divorce done because I'm losing the ability to deduct it. Um, or from the recipient's side, I'm going to get so much less money. I need my divorce <laughs> done now. 
What they didn't understand is the only differential is taxes. So if you were in a 40% tax bracket, and I'll do this because it's simple math, and you were supposed to get $1,000 a month, taxes are 400, 40% tax bracket, you're left with $600. So before you got $1,000, you paid taxes of 400 and you were left with 600 Now you just get that 600 Right. You're in the same place. People don't really think about that. They just sort of panicked because they knew that this change was coming. And the reality is the only people who really benefited from the uh, old law was if the husband and wife were in really different brackets. tax brackets. Yes. Then you could take advantage of the differential and sort of have the government picking up. Take the, take the hit. Exactly. Which made me very happy also, but no, not so much anymore, evidently. Right. So now it's just you're going to get net without paying taxes, what you used to net after paying taxes on a gross amount. So people shouldn't panic about that. Again, it's just the California guidance that we're all still waiting for as to what, if we're going to conform or what rules are going to conform. And the good news is that child support has always been non-taxable. So at least there is some simplification with regard to your job and my job when we're figuring that out for people. It also, as you said, it does make it somewhat easier to know you're getting a net number and you don't have to be worried about, well, what am I paying taxes and how is this going to affect me? So once we all kind of wrapped our heads around the fact that this is likely going to be the case, we are, I think we're much more comfortable with it. I actually really like it because part of the calculations that we used to always have to do was to say, okay, if you're getting $10,000 a month, you know, and that leaves you with how many dollars in your pocket, again, for expedience sake, if you're in a 40% tax bracket, you're left with the six grand. But we used to have to do these calculations all the time. Let's say we wanted to back into it in the reverse. We knew somebody needed their marital standard of living was 10000 a month. How much gross would they need to get to net them that $10,000 a month. And now we don't have to play that game. Right. You need 10, pay your 10. Right. <laughs> it's that simple. With regard to people who are receiving spousal support, I get this question often. I'm getting spousal support, but my kids are both in school and I've been offered a job. Should I take it or is that going to affect my spousal support? Oh, I love that question. Especially, by the way, when the advice comes from the person they were sitting next to at the hairdressers. <laughs> That's my other favorite. Or their cousin's aunt. Yeah. Right. right. I guess their cousin's aunt would be your mom. Their cousin's, their cousin's sister-in-law. Right. Said X. And why, why does X not apply to me? So, you know what? I, when clients say that to me, I, I, I always tell them, if the job is something you're interested in, you take that job. This is not about game playing. Yes, it could have an impact on your support. Now, some people, when they are getting divorced, negotiate for some allowance. That's the wrong word. I'm not saying somebody's writing you a check, but some allowance before there would be a modification. A leeway. A leeway. A leeway. So before I'm going to go back and try to reduce your support, I'm going to let you earn X because I want to motivate you to get in the workforce and be a healthier person and contribute to society, particularly if we have kids. Now, if you hit the jackpot and you become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, not so much paying you anymore, yes? A hundred percent. And again, that leeway is a really good thing to negotiate. I mean, I always try to deal with that with clients for, 
it's when you think about it, as we were talking about, again, rather sexist of us to say that wife who's been out of the workforce forever or who hasn't worked, what it can do for them from a self-esteem to enable them to be better parents, et cetera, all of that is a good thing. So if you know you have a client who wants to get back in the workforce, that's the first thing we say is, look, before we modify support, let's come up with some number, 75 grand a year, making up a number, or 100 grand a year before this is even going to impact the support obligation. And the reality is, aside from all the good things it would do for somebody to get back in the workforce, it just makes good financial sense because if you have attorneys and you have forensic accountants, it's expensive to modify support. You know, you don't want to necessarily run in there for a $50,000 a year job, which after taxes net somebody thirty grand. You could spend that thirty grand modifying support with everybody. So it just makes good financial sense to do that as well. But yeah, that is the question. First of all, do you have that kind of agreement with your spouse. And by the way, if it is going to affect your, you know, your support, still go get the job. (laughs) You know, I don't understand this. I should sit at home because heaven forbid I get $1 less than, you know, somebody owes to me when I could have this incredible sense of satisfaction by going out and working myself and replacing those dollars. This this is coming from a woman who actually (laughs) likes her job. Um, That's true too. (laughs) So Tracy, for those listeners who actually have listened to our advice and they've gotten gone out and they've gotten that next career, they're, they've figured out a way not to reduce their support, but also to get back into the workforce. Tell us a little bit, give us some of your, your forensic accountant CPA tips on what good budgeting means. Now we've started our next chapter. How do we make sure? And, and one thing I often say to people is, I know you're in this situation now, you'll never be in this situation again. So the people who have learned from their experience, give us now your your wisdom as to how to keep that money and make it work for you. So we talked about when you're going through the process, remember those financial affidavits that you have to fill out. And one of the affidavits was the income and expense declaration. And the expense declaration was the listing of everything you spend per month. And that's vital for the next step in your life. It's not just relevant for what's my support going to be so the court can know what my expenses were. But it's a framework for you to think about as you're going through this next step. Now I'm getting support. I also have a job. That income and expense declaration can be vital to help you think about your monthly budget because it literally has a listing for rent, for mortgage, for child care expenses, for uh, insurance expenses, for eating out, for household supplies, for savings. I mean, it even has a spot for savings. So if you know what your monthly income is, and that's your spousal support plus your earnings, less taxes, not on your spousal support, we've talked about (laughs) that, but just on your earnings, and you know what the net dollars that you are bringing in every month, you should be able to figure out of those dollars what you're going to allot to each of those categories in that income and expense declaration and if possible, include savings right. in that because it really is important. And I know it's the last thing people think about, but it's so important for when 
something happens, that there is a cushion. Saving for that rainy day, saving for when your spousal support or child support might end, saving if there's some kind of an unforeseen expenditure with a family member or whatever else, super important. And also taking that income and expense declaration, figuring out how you can cut costs in Chapter 2. Do I really need a massage every other week or can I go once a week? Can I sell some of my clothes at the Real Real or some other consignment shop so that I can make some income there before I start buying new clothes? Where can I cut corners? Where can I downsize? How can I save? That is the best advice that we've heard in terms of your new financial responsibility in your next chapter. If I'm getting married in a state that... um, counts separate property as separate, and I don't have a prenuptial agreement, what documents do I need to keep to help if I eventually will be getting divorced, my accountants do what we call a tracing in California? What would you say if I'm going to get married, Tracy, and you needed to do a tracing, and I and I, I have my house, but I'm going to be putting payments into it, and I'm going to be doing some kind of a revamp and putting a pool in. What do I need to keep? I'm just a normal average Joe. I don't have a business manager. I don't have an accountant. What records should I be keeping and earmarking to make sure that if I ever split up, I can keep the stuff in my house separate? Everything. Oh, well, (laughs) there's the easy answer. There's the easy answer. But the reality is you need to keep bank statements. You need to keep canceled checks. You need to keep the vendor invoices. You should keep all of that because to the extent that you have, let's say, you know, a family member died and you're sitting on an account with half a million dollars in it of separate property and you now want to put this into your community house because you want to do a new kitchen or put in a pool or whatever it is, you have to keep every record that of those transactions. You want to keep the checks you write to the contractor. You want to keep the copies of the credit card statements that went to um, Santa Monica Appliance, you know, Snyder Diamond. You want to keep everything possible because, at least in California, it is your burden as the person who is claiming their separate property and asking for that back at the time of a dissolution. It is your burden to prove those claims that you have, which means you better be able to show, here's what I paid to the contractor for $75,000 for the pool. And, and here's the account it came from, which is the account that my great uncle Willie left me when he died. So you want to trace it. Uncle Willie's death, the account I opened with the money he left me. I don't even have an uncle Willie, Jeff. I don't know why you're looking at me like, and then the $75,000 that I used to, to build the pool. I literally try to tell people, think of it as the bouncing ball. You want to follow the bouncing ball from every place it lands. The first place it landed is in the account from your Uncle Willie. It goes to the <laughs> contractor, right? You need to follow that check. You know, it goes to pay the MasterCard bill that has the $100,000 worth of appliances on it. You need the MasterCard bill and you need that check. You have to have all of that documentation so that you can get back whatever it is you're claiming. Okay. I think that we've reached the time in the show where we do our family law interrogatories. Um, I've already asked you one. Are you married, dating, single? I am married happily now for almost 15 years this year. Oh, my God. Which is very impressive when you consider we've been building a house for like the last five. Very impressive. (laughs) Very impressive. Hi, David Blumenthal. Okay. And Tracy, what is your favorite breakup song? Okay. I'm really going to date myself with this. And by the way, when Laura said we've known each other for 25 years, I really wanted to say, yes, I met her when I was one. But I guess (laughs) that that's not true when I tell you that I would have to say it's Gloria Gaynor. I will survive. I've got all my 
Yes. And what advice would you give a friend of yours who is going through a breakup? Uh, somebody who's going through a breakup, I like to tell them, I, I hope we have two minutes. But, yeah, we have plenty of time. Go okay. Ahead. I like to tell them, and this is sort of my advice for everybody if you're having an amicable dissolution. The first thing everybody should do is divide up everything that is community. And it sounds so silly, but we have this kind of annoying practice in California where two years after a party separated, we have to go back and figure out who spent what dollars, you know, because on the day we separated, there was $100,000 in our account. And in California, if that's all community, husband should get 50 and wife should get 50. But that's not what happened. We continued to live from that account. We continued to pay bills. We continued to do things. And now in a very expensive exercise, the accountants go back and figure out who spent what dollars. This is called a post-separation accounting, folks. And many of my clients end up spending more on the post-separation accounting than they do on the actual divorce. Yes. And so that's why I tell clients, if it's amicable, meaning you guys, you know, we've all decided we're done. This is what's in our bank account. You take half, I'll take half. This is what's in, you know, our checking account. You take half, I'll take half. These are our stocks. We'll get half the stocks transferred into an account in my name, half, you know, we'll stay with you. And that avoids that whole issue of who spent what dollars. Now you are the only person spending your half of dollars and we don't have to fight about it. Most people say I go have a glass of wine with my friend and tell her this too shall pass. Tracy Cat goes, Tracy Cat says, divide everything that's community. I do. I I know. I know. I should, again, I should be more sympathetic. But this is what happens when you have a numbers geek for a friend. That's true. I like it. And, And it is actually really, really very good advice. And then the things that you can't easily divide or one person says, oh, no, no, I put that $75,000 swimming pool in with my Uncle Willie's money. Put those to the side. Argue about those later, but divide what you can at the outset. Um, Favorite romantic comedy that you could watch over and over again and never get sick of? Okay, so again, I'm probably going to date myself with this one, but When Harry Met Sally. That's one of of the podcast favorites. Absolutely. Love it. Okay. Um, that I'll is, have what she's having. I'll have what she's having. Oh, oh. That is the end of our show today. Tracy Katz, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us how we can reach you if we'd like to ask questions, if you've got a, a website or somewhere where we can reach out, or would you rather that we just left you alone until I call you next time and say, will you be on my podcast? No, you can absolutely reach me. My firm's website is www.gersey.com, and you can reach me through there. Or you can, my email address is t. Katz, K-A-T-Z, at Gersey.com, G-U-R-S as in Sam, E-Y.com. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Tracy Katz is my guest today on the Divorce Sex Podcast here at Podcast One. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm-hmm.